School districts are using resources that they're saying they're the national standards or, or these are you know approved by various groups. A lot of these are just organizations that are pushing gender theory. They don't have any credentials other than their own perspective. And so it's really important to remember that in, in question, when somebody says, well, this is a national standard, well, who's national standard? Who, who said this is a national standard? Hey, Joyful Warriors, this is Tiffany Justice, the host of the Joyful Warrior podcast, and we are so excited today to be joined by Libby Sobick. Libby Sobick is the Director of Education Policy at Wisconsin Law and Liberty and also an attorney there. And they do work not just in Wisconsin, but they actually have been working and writing model, model policy for um, people to use all across the country. And so welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast, Libby. And I'm going to let you do an intro for yourself because I think you'll do a much better job. And there was a lot on the website. So I, I want you to kind of tell us what, what do we need to know about you and Wisconsin Lib Law and Liberty? Well, thank you, Tiffany. I'm so excited uh, to be joining you today. Um, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is a law and policy organization that started out as a state based think tank. But over the last 11 years, we've really grown to recognize that there are important areas that need more support. So particularly in education. So our education policy and litigation teams have been working together to really support the uh, parent empowerment movement that we've seen since the pandemic and recognizing that it's while we stand for universal school choice, meaning every child should have access to a high quality school, we also recognize that our public schools are an institution in many communities that are going to continue to be there. And we want to empower families, parents, and taxpayers in a way that really encourages the local school board and school district to be reflective of their community's values and policies rather than uh, those being set by the Biden administration and others. Wonderful. So you and I saw each other last at the State Policy Network meeting in Atlanta, and I got to see think tanks and different policy groups from all over the country come together and kind of strategize about the work that they're doing and what they can do in the future. But So I'm, I've had a huge learning curve as far as um, all of the different people involved in, in writing policy and helping policy to come to be. But for our listeners who may not really even know about this world of think tanks and policy in the policy network, can you kind of give us a little bit of a, an inside uh, baseball kind of look sure. right at, at that world and, and why we should know about it and, and, and why it's so important for us to, to be vocal in, 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 in uh, helping to create good policy? Absolutely. So um, groups like the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty and others around the country really got started as a response to the strategic both litigation and policy work that we were seeing being done um, by many liberal organizations. My boss is very fond of saying that he wanted to found Will, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, as a response to the work that the ACLU had been doing in the courts for many years. Um, the idea of being a strategic uh, litigation center or policy center at the state level is something that the conservatives um, really have just started paying attention to in the last couple of decades. And so organizations like Will really exist 
for a couple of reasons. One is we know that so much policy gets pushed down at the federal level and Congress and the executive branch is a mess, as we all know. And so it's really important to encourage federalism in the state role. And so many groups like ours really engage at the state level. How can we ensure there are good policies being put in place that are good not only for taxpayers and families, but also good and healthy for our our country? And then I think you've seen a real shift as politics in the world have changed to really having to defend um, many, many individuals from cancel culture, from these crazy woke policies. And so many organizations like Will and Alliance Defending Freedom and others have been engaged on litigation fronts, trying to either be making advances to create more parental rights in state constitutions or we're seeing um, efforts of defending parents or others who are really being subjected to these just crazy policies. And so groups like Will really exist to engage at the state level. But as these issues have just taken over the country, and as we've seen community after community community really struggle to figure out how to respond, um, Will has really felt like our ability to share our resources should be engaged outside of Wisconsin. So we've sued the Biden administration um, several times over the last couple of years, um, and we'll continue to do so, and also try to engage in other states where these issues are really relevant for communities, and there's not as many resources. Wonderful. So thank you for that. I think that's a, a great insight. And you and I talked a little bit about the importance of taxpayers, parents, community members having their voices heard in policy. And one of the things I think a lot of our parents have felt is that oftentimes a bill is uh, put up um, and, and sponsored by someone, and, and the parents are reading about it in the paper. And they're like, wow, you know, this could have been tweaked in a little bit of a different way, or I wish this had been included in this bill. And so Moms for Liberty is working very hard, and our chapters are working hard to build relationships with their state policy groups to talk to them, to help to inform some of, of the policies that are being written so that it is responsive to what we're seeing on the ground. So uh, moms, dads, if you're listening to this right now, um, reach out and, and look, just do a search on the internet. You know, who are the policy groups in my state um, that are doing work in this area? And, and just reach out to them and say, you know, I'd like to get some more information or I'd like to be more involved. Um, our chapters are doing that, but I encourage everyone um, we realized during COVID that this government does not work well without us. And I promise you, uh, mm -hmm. listeners, that the more involved you are in helping to create good policy that isn't reactive, but that is proactive, that it is building upon what you're seeing in other places and, and what you can help to um, have happen in your own state is, is a very rewarding process. Um, so Libby, I'd like to go to your website if I can. Um, and so if we look here, this is the homepage. Um, and I think you guys have a fabulous website, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. You're welcome. And so I just want to read your mission statement at uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is, through litigation, education, and participation in public discourse, Will advances the public interest in the rule of law, individual liberty, constitutional government, and a robust civil society. And we say um, amen to that. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, so our website is really a compilation of all the different work that we do. So um, we do, as I mentioned, both litigation and policy. 
And um, so the, a lot of the work that we're doing that I think are really responsive to your listeners and your chapters is under our policy tab, education. Um, and actually, if you can, there's a little subset carrot next to education um, at the top uh, to make it a little bit easier. And if you click on Restoring American Education, that is a website completely dedicated to this effort. You also can get to it um, with some uh, keywords. So if you do our website, will-law.org backslash restoring ed, it would take you right here. And this website is really designed to support communities who are looking to create change. So there's resources for school board members, for teachers, and for parents. And so each one of these boxes linked to a variety of resources uh, based off of the audiences we're trying to reach to really help engage people at that local level. So where should we go first, Libby? Let's do a little deep dive. Let's into click the school boards. School boards. Yep. Okay. Let's check it out. Here we go. School board resources. So this is our school board resource page, and this is going to lead um, with two things. One is we know that the Title IX changes coming from the federal government, there's been an immense uh, miscommunication campaign by um, the public school establishment about what it means and when it when it applies. So we have been putting timely updates, helping anybody across the country understand whether this, whether these things are in effect, what's actually happening now. Uh, spoiler alert, they are not in effect. Title IX uh, defining discrimination based on sex is still biological sex. Um, and so if you're hearing otherwise, that is a miscommunication to what the actual law is. So Libby, and can then, we talk about that ahead. for a second? I, I'd like to pause here for a moment. Let's talk about the fact that there are so many school districts across this country that are implementing changes as if mm. these regulation changes have happened already, as if Title IX regulation changes are, are saying um, that they've come into effect, that you know they're saying, well, boys should be able to play on girls' sports teams and boys should be able to use, you know, girls' bathrooms and vice versa. And so just some insight into why um, so many districts either feel emboldened or just don't realize that the guidance that came from the Biden administration wasn't something that was directing action. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think there's two issues. One is that the Biden administration is really dedicated to this advancement of this policy. And so they are doing everything in their power to make it feel like it's real. So what you what school boards need to know or school uh, parents who are sending their kids to public schools is that the U.S. Department of Education has proposed rules on how to change their interpretation of Title IX and what that means for participating public schools. But there's a lot of requirements around how the federal government must make these changes. We are currently at a state where they, for 60 days, were accepting comments. They got a ton of comments, over 100,000 comments on the rule. And now the department must go through and respond to these comments. So there's going to be a couple of months of time where some bureaucrats in D.C. are going to be reading a lot of letters from angry parents about these changes. Then, and only after that step, does the department then have to issue what are called final regulations. 
at that point, they'll have an effective date. And I would fully expect that we're going to see an immense amount of litigation pop up as soon as we have an effective date, because people really believe, like Will, that these changes are not in accordance with federal law, that it's an inappropriate agency action, and that Congress actually needs to vote to change the meaning of Title IX. And that's not something that President Biden can do in an executive order, nor is it something the department can just decide to do without direction from the legislative branch. So we have a long time before these rules are even going to be ready to go to court, much less be in effect. I think what we're seeing on the local side, we're hearing from many school boards that their attorneys are saying, well, you should update your policies because this is going to be law and you don't want to be liable for lawsuits, which is a complete mischaracterization of this process. It's going to be several months before we're anywhere close to final rules. And again, we need final rules in order to have an effective date. And it's very likely that a judge is going to hear this hear a case and immediately strike down these rules. And so it is a mischaracterization to say that these rules are in effect today and that schools should be changing their policies in accordance with something that essentially is a working document and something that has no legal effect. Thank you for that. And, and you know, in Florida, we've had conversations. Florida, Governor DeSantis has taken a very hard line on this issue. Uh, the Department of Education, uh, Manny Diaz, who's the commissioner, issued uh, a statement to all school boards, making them aware of the fact that this, this was these were proposed regulations. These were not things that needed to be adopted at that school board level. I know the superintendent of schools, um, Cade Brumley in Louisiana, has also taken that action at the statewide level um, to send out a letter to school boards. That's something you can encourage your elected officials to do. You can encourage them to send out notifications to school boards and superintendents to ensure that they're aware that these changes don't need to happen right now, need to be made. Um, the other thing I just want to say for listeners, federal funding for education is roughly around 10% of, of most uh, state uh, school district budgets. Um, and so I don't think it's too early uh, to start thinking about, you know, what does it look like? if these regulations do actually get pushed through, um, you know, how would you reprioritize in your state? Do you have reserve funds that you could tap into? Does your legislature have the appetite to kind of revise their budget and look at the way that they're spending money? Um, it does seem like the federal government wants more and more and more involvement uh, into states and, and state education uh, rights. And so just something to be on the, uh, on the lookout for. I don't think this is the last um, effort they will make to try to uh, push things down from the federal levels. What do you think about that, Libby? I totally agree. And for your listeners that are in states like Wisconsin, where we don't have a friendly uh, governor or head of Department of Education, um, we are going to be keeping our website up to date on where things stand so people from all over the country can know what the real status of these rules are and have access to legal documents that really show what the true status of, um, of Title IX is today. But the, I completely agree. The Biden administration is not done. They're going to continue to put out more and more policies, and we're going to, it's going to be up to us taxpayers to really be on the lookout for that. 
Wonderful. Yes, again, this government does not work well without us. We, we must be involved. Um, so speaking about getting involved, this is for, for school board members as a resource, but really for everyone, because you can always bring policies and suggestions to your school board and, and have them bring it for approval and adoption. Um, so we're going to move on in your website. And now we're in a, a space called Model School Board Policies. And I just think these are awesome. So Libby, why don't you walk us through this and I'll scroll as, as you tell me to. Yeah. So one of the things that we were hearing um, after the parent empowerment movement is that people were getting elected to school boards and then they weren't given any resources of what are pro-parent, pro-transparency policies that they could implement that could make a really big difference. And so we crafted um, about 11 policies based on what I would say are kind of the hot button issues right now. We have more in the works. And so this is a living website, if you will. We're hoping to release some more this month. Um, so the first one, as an example, is the right to review instructional materials and related documents. This is in response to the curriculum transparency bills that we pushed um, all across, you know, we're pushed all across the country. And one of the things that we've realized when drafting these model policies is you're going to have states like Florida that have passed just great laws, right? And that have different expectations for their school boards. And then you're going to have states like Wisconsin that just haven't had a governor uh, willing to sign those bills yet. So these model policies are really based on um, federal law. And it was done strategically. So that way, anybody in any state can take this model policy, take it to their school board and say, this is our starting place. These are the goals we have. This is the effort we want to make. Here's the legal analysis as to why we think we should do this. And they're going to need to be tweaked because, again, there's going to be some state laws. But for the most part, as a starting place for school board members or parents who want to advance initiatives, these are sound legal policies that are really designed to reach communities all across the country. Wonderful. And I, I want to, you know, talk about parental rights for a second, second and fundamental parental rights. You're an attorney. So let's dive into this for a second. Right to review instructional materials and related documents. This is a parental rights issue. It's important that everyone recognizes this is a parental rights issue. Um, parents have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children, and that's their education, their medical care, their moral, moral and religious upbringing. And so when you think about a parent directing their education, how can you possibly direct the education of your child if there isn't transparency in what they're being taught? And so have you, this seems like something so simple, Libby, that, you know, well, let the parents see what you're teaching the kids, but it hasn't been that simple, has it? No, it absolutely has not been that simple. Um, and I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I think that there was a real trust built up between parents um, and their school community that was based on a lot of assumptions. I think a lot of parents assumed their kids were receiving a similar education that they received um, in their generation and that there wasn't some sort of effort that was kind of infiltrating their schools. And the pandemic, uh, you know, gave parents a peek into the classroom and everyone was shocked, right? I think I haven't found one parent who is thrilled with what they found. Um, and so that was an effort that, you know, the public school establishment never saw coming. And so once the pandemic, they had to start to respond, they've now wanted 
with an effort to keep parents out of the classroom, have now tried to say, well, these materials, you know, you have to pay us thousands of dollars to get them via FOIA requests. Or, you know, we don't, we haven't written the teacher lesson plan yet. But all of those are excuses that should not be able to be uh, used as deterrence for parents. As you said, the United States Supreme Court has recognized the right for parents to direct the upbringing of their children. Federal law has a, um, it's called the Pupil Protection Rights Act, that says parents must have access to review instructional materials. And so we want to empower parents and school board members to say, look, these rights exist. And oh, by the way, school board, you don't have to wait for your governor to sign a bill that forces you to do this. You could choose to be proactive and build a relationship of trust with your parents. Because ultimately, every time a school board plays games with access to these materials, they are just hurting themselves because they're losing more and more kids and parents in the community. And so it's really, I think, dependent on school board members to really take this issue up and not be afraid of the ability of parents to be able to have a seat at the table and access these materials. Wonderful. So I'm going to go through, I just want to highlight some of these. So right to review professional development training materials. That's super important. You know, we've yes. seen very directly that oftentimes it's not necessarily the curriculum. Uh, we have a, a chapter, Williamson County, Tennessee, they have a curriculum called Wit and Wisdom. And it wasn't the curriculum that was really the issue. It wasn't necessarily the books that were being used in these nine-week modules. It was the teacher's manuals. It was the way that the teachers were being trained to present the information and explicitly sometimes told to present the information. And so, you know, when people say, oh, CRT isn't being taught, well, you need to look at those professional development training manuals because I guarantee that uh, in somewhere, some part of your state, there are teachers that are going through training that um, is laced with CRT uh, principles and, and critical theory. And, and it's important to be able to see that because sometimes, you know, when people say, well, it's, CRT is not being taught, well, no, it's not being explicitly taught in a textbook that you're child is using in that classroom. Um, you have parent and family and community, parent, family, and community engagement, um, controversial issues. Why don't you talk about that for a second? That's interesting. So many uh, controversial issues. And, and I know I want to chat with you before we're done about what the heck is going on with sex standards in Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little out of control. And, and I'll give a warning to parents before uh, we start talking about that because it gets a little dicey, even though I know they want to talk to your kids about it. It's craziness. <laughs> but let's talk about controversial issues because I think there are a lot of parents that are saying like, why are we even discussing some of these things or how should these discussions be happening in the classroom? Yeah, that's right. So we based a controversial issues policy on, again, that federal law, the Pupil Protection Rights Act, that says if your child is going to be surveyed on controversial issues, you're supposed to receive notice and have the ability to opt out. We think that that's the floor of, of requirements. And so we wanted to draft a model policy that would, one, define what a controversial issue is. You know, that's going to look different for different communities. And then second, there needs to be a process for both how there's an introduction of issues related into the into the classroom, and if a parent is, is uncomfortable with it, a process to be able to opt out of that. And so we have found in Wisconsin that – 
There are school boards that have controversial controversial issues in the classroom, but where the rubber really hits the road is a parent brings an issue to the principal and they say, well, I don't think that's controversial. And so it's really important when we're talking about these policies that there's really clear direction on what a definition is and what the process is for parents to engage in defining a controversial topic. It could look different, right? A controversial topic for my five-year-old is going to look really different for maybe somebody else's high schooler. That, I think, is a very natural conversation that should be had at the local level. And these model policies are trying to get to that heart of we should be having these conversations with our communities and we should have policies at our school board level that are reflective of our community's values. And I think that's something that is so important and special that we should just take a moment to talk about right now. America is very unique uh, in many ways. Um, one of the things that's unique about us is that we do uh, work to educate every child. Uh, our public schools aren't doing a fantastic job at that right now, um, unfortunately, um, but we're working to fix that, um, right? But the truth yeah. is that um, we do educate every child. We do try to unfold the full potential of every child or make an effort to do that as a country, and that's something that's really special about America. Not every country does that in the same way. The, the other thing that's very unique is we do have elected representatives representatives at that very most local level of school board. This gives such a unique way for families and community members to have their voices heard in the education of the children in that community. And these school board policies, Libby, I know I've told you before, I'm going to gush a little bit more about it again. This is so great because one of the things at Moms for Liberty that we really do work to do is build relationships. And I think you do have some very well-meaning school board members, uh, people working in school districts are involved in public education, but they just don't know where to start. They recognize that there are issues that are happening, but the administrative state in their district um, is deep right? And, and thick. Yes. And it's hard to work through sometimes. And so these policies are a great way that you as a school board member can create a, a positive change and to, to take the direction of the district and to move it forward in the way that you'd like to. So as a school board member, you um, enact policies and adopt policies and resolutions and you direct the work of the superintendent. He generally or she generally does the work of the day in the district, making those policies kind of come alive. And so again, just a really great way for people to build a relationship and to create the change that they want to see. Um, and, and the the policies, as you said, and I go back, you have um, the model school board policies, which are wonderful. Again, school board members, you can bring that forward. Superintendents can, but parents can too. Um, and then you have a section for teachers and parents. Is there anything you'd like to highlight in here specifically? Yeah. If you want to click on the teacher uh, tab, I think this is a really unique area that we've been trying to uh, partner with academics um, all over the country who really want to have the conversation of how do we have a hopeful perspective when we teach about America? That doesn't mean you don't talk about her scars and the, the mistakes that have been made. My goodness, that those are very relevant. But how do we really talk about um, the idea of human flourishing and, and a hopefulness that I think we want all of our students to really um, experience when they're learning about um, the history of America and important topics like civics. So at the bottom, what you're scrolling on is a list of existing curriculum and resources that could help parents 
ask their teachers to engage on, or even teachers who are looking for other resources when they're teaching these topics. These are all resources that have been reviewed by academics who spend their time writing curriculum and are really designed to just be a helpful starting place to say, how do we talk about these issues? And we really wanted to encourage this aspect of the education because we've heard from teachers that they don't love the, the emphasis that some of their administrators or universities are putting on these topics, but they don't really know where to start. And so we really think that the teacher resources concept is a really important part of solving this community engagement of making sure it's not only policies at the school board level, but it's also resources available to those who are doing the really important work of teaching our kiddos. And we love teachers and want to partner with teachers. We don't co-parent with the government, but we definitely want to partner with our children's teachers and bringing different resources to your school board uh, and suggesting perhaps that they could be used as curriculum in your district is a wonderful way. Uh, Again, build that relationship. And then we'll go to the parents section, if that's okay with you, Libby, and check that out. So, uh, Tiffany, you're going to, a lot of this is going to look familiar because we've been highlighting a lot of the great work that uh, Moms for Liberty does and and the different resources that are out there. So we list um, as many resources as possible for parents that are looking to engage with their local communities, whether that's creating a Moms for Liberty chapter or looking for resources that are giving more information about um, their their education in status in, in their communities. And so we have a long list of resources for parents. We have some more specific Wisconsin resources um, about what education lo- looks like in Wisconsin. But I think that this is an important part for the parent who's just starting out, right? Who's upset, doesn't know where to go. Um, There are so many great organizations like Moms for Liberty that are really working to build community-based groups and relationships. And we want to just make sure that families and parents who want to have these conversations have access to those resources. And we're just trying to be a landing spot for that. Well, I think that is absolutely wonderful. And you have some amazing links here. Um, So definitely, if you're listening, go to the Wisconsin uh, Institute for Law and Liberty's website, and you can go to wil-law.org and, and explore. And again, um, you're going to go to the policy section, and you're going to click on education, and then you're going to click on restoring American education, or do a Google search, or, or DuckDuckGo, whatever it is you use, uh, restoring American education and Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, which is known as WILL. Um, before we end today, Libby, I would like to talk about Wisconsin. So we have a number of chapters in Wisconsin, and I think most people would be shocked to learn about some of the things that are happening in Wisconsin. But the truth is, and you and I know this now, right, making friends all over the country, that this woke ideology is so pervasive. And um, critical theory has just kind of wormed its way into everything that is being taught uh, to our children, starting in kindergarten, which is just mind-blowing in so many ways. Um, One of the things that our moms and dads are really concerned about right now uh, are the new comprehensive sex education standards that many uh, districts are looking at adopting or adopting in Wisconsin. So um, if you would like to talk about that and then highlight any other issues that uh, if you're from Wisconsin, you could learn a little bit more about what's happening in your state. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, I think, the number one driving issue that I think families are responding to right now. I want to start by setting the table that Wisconsin's unique in that our school districts get to choose their own curriculum. 
and that um, this curriculum isn't automatic. You don't, school districts don't have to offer sex ed, what we call in our state human growth and development, but that school boards have to actively opt into teaching that. And so where a lot of the national attention has come from is school boards who are starting that process to opt in to creating the sex ed uh, curricula for their school and then following the state law requirements of having um, a meeting that's voted on it, a parent advisory board. And honestly, it was just shocking. I mean, I've gone through some of this curriculum and there's sort of two things I want to highlight. One is school districts are using resources that they're saying they're the national standards or, or these are, you know, approved by various groups. A lot of these are just organizations that are pushing gender theory. They don't have any credentials other than their own perspective. And so it's really important to remember that in, in question, when somebody says, well, this is a national standard, well, who's national standard? Who, who said this is a national standard? Um, and then second, it, this emphasis of, of really discussing explicitly um, sex and gender with very young children is an effort that I that we at will and I as a parent just have a lot of concerns about because I it's just not age appropriate and we're taking away these kids' innocence. And um, while I think high schoolers and middle schoolers should know about protection and understand that sex can lead to a baby, that's really important. But we don't need a kindergartner to have that conversation. We certainly don't need a third grader to have that conversation. And so the debate that you're seeing in Wisconsin right now is really the public school establishment saying, well, no, we have to teach these things because kids need to understand that if they want to choose a different gender, they can. And parents really saying, no, that's not your place. You are not my child's guardian or parent. That's my decision. And this is an ongoing fight. And I I think parents are going to ultimately prevail. I believe that sanity is going to reign. But this is, you know, the ground zero fight, if you will, in terms of how we're seeing the public school establishment infiltrate into the parental right to direct the upbringing of their child. Yeah, and I want to be clear. They they don't just want to teach reproductive biology to kindergartners. They do, in fact, want to teach them about gender identity. Um, yes. and, and that's something that that I know, I think it's, is it Wauwatosa? Did I say that? Wauwatosa. 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 Okay. I know that that's been a really big issue. And, and, uh, and, and so I know parents are fighting back. We have some amazing chapters. I know Scarlett Johnson and some other chapters, Paige, they've been fighting really hard in, in Wisconsin and helping to have parents' voices heard. If you want to learn a little bit more about what's happening in Wauwatosa, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Rossi, uh, listeners, just wrote an article for Chalkboard Review where he really mm. breaks down and goes through the standards that have been adopted there that the parents are very concerned about. Uh, so again, that's Chalkboard Review, great um, publication that's uh, former teachers and others, parents writing about education issues, and Paul Rossi did that article. Um, about Wisconsin sexual education standards. Um, quickly, Libby, I want to talk about parental rights and parents' bills of rights. So Moms for Liberty has a pledge. You can go to momsforliberty.org backslash pledge, and, and there's a pledge there that candidates and elected officials can take. Uh, 
um, that states that they recognize that parental rights are fundamental and they will work to enact policies that respect parental rights and recognize them and, and that will work to prevent government overreach into the areas of home um, and, and family. And so I, I encourage everyone to go take a look at that pledge. Uh, if you go to that page, there's also some resolutions. We've worked with parentalrights.org. I know you know them well, Libby Will Estrada. Yes. Uh, and and he, they wrote some resolutions for us. And so um, similar to many things that you have on your website, um, a parental rights resolution uh, that any level of government can pass, recognizing fundamental parental rights. We would like to see a parent's bill of rights in every state in the United States. Uh, right now, currently, they the fundamental parental rights are recognized in 15 states. Uh, Wisconsin is not one of those states. So um, tell us, because you and I have had conversations and you've reminded me that it's important to know what the makeup of your state is. And in America, each state is unique. Sometimes you have a governor who appoints the commissioner of education or the board of medicine or what have you. Um, but I know that's not the, the, the situation in Wisconsin. So why don't you give us a little rundown just so we can get an inside look? Yeah, um, I always tell you this is why I'm jealous of those of you who live in Florida. Um, so Wisconsin has some unique quirks that make education at the state level particularly difficult. So um, our state department head, what we call our public instruction, is actually a constitutional officer. They're elected separately from um, the executive branch and from the legislature. They're elected on off-cycle uh, spring elections, which, as we all have learned from school board races, is an effort that just gives the public uh, teachers union and other public school establishment activists just access to the race in a very different way. And then they have constitutional powers in Wisconsin. So while the legislature can pass laws, the, um, the executive branch, our governor, does not have direct authority over that office. And there's a real tension in Wisconsin, at least, of when the legislature passes a law and it goes into the Department of Public Instruction, our State Department of Education, how they implement it. Are they following the intention that was really designed? Um, quick war story. I'll give you an example. Our current governor used to be the head of our Department of Public Instruction. And during the Common Core debates, he signed the state up to be the first state to adopt Common Core. And so our legislature had to go pass a law that says, well, we, you as a constitutional officer can adopt, you can sign us up. You cannot mandate that school boards must adopt this curriculum. And so it's just a unique quirk to a state like Wisconsin, and it makes the legislative work that we do and the policy at the state level so important to be done well and really thought out because you have, unfortunately, actors at the state level that are just really hostile to the ideas of parental rights, parents' involvement, school choice. And so we we at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty have to work really hard, both policy and legal-wise, to make sure that those intentions are being upheld. Thank you for that. I appreciate it because every state is unique and it's been a bit like drinking from a fire hose in the last two years. Originally when Tina and I started Moms for Liberty, we were like, let's do Florida. Like we know Florida, <laughs> we understand the policy in Florida, the budget's right. We kind of understand the politics a little bit, although I'd only served for four years in elected office. So that's not, you know, that's not a lifetime. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> but uh, the truth is that every state is unique. So it's really important in your state if you're new to advocating for 
four different policies to, to understand and to get to know the way your state works. So Libby, the last question that I'll ask you, um, and, and I just want to take a second before I ask you this, I want to thank the funders of WILL, of Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Um, and I want to thank you all for doing the work that you do because all of this is free to us. Um, all of these resources and the work that you do in representing uh, parents and, and, and pushing for different types of policy and, and suing the federal government is, is made possible by people who very much care uh, about the work that you do and help to fund it. So uh, please pass on our thanks because we absolutely think that the resources that you're creating are fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, we are very grateful for our uh, supporters because we think that this is, you know, parents shouldn't have to pay someone, a lawyer, to help them navigate these issues. And we think it's really important that there's resources available to communities who are navigating just really complicated systems that, that they have somebody on their side. Thank you for that. And so the last question is really about that. So I'm a parent. And I'm really, I'm watching what's happening and I'm, I'm a little frustrated, right? A little angry maybe even. Um, and, and I want to do something. I want to get involved and I want to learn more about my state. And, and so I do a search and I find the policy networks that are in my state. You know, I, I, maybe I'm a Moms for Liberty uh, chapter member um, and, and I want to start a, a conversation. Uh, with people who know more than me about what's happening in my state. What does that look like and sound like, Libby? Give some advice to people who, you know, might be a little intimidated just to pick up the phone and call you or email you um, or someone sure. like you. Uh, where, where should they start? So I think they have to, one, I want to encourage parents that I always tell them that I could get up and go in front of the legislature all day, every day, but my voice as representing the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is nowhere near as powerful as a parent who is taking time out of their day to talk with their local representatives and sharing their stories and the concerns. And so I, I always want to start with the fact that parent voices, taxpayer voices are so critical and important, and so they should feel empowered to engage in their local or state level of politics. Um, I recommend sending emails or picking up the phone and saying, look, I, this is my problem. I'm unhappy with my students' curriculum. I'm unhappy with my school board's decision-making powers. What's, what efforts are you taking to try to make this better for families like mine? And I think opening up that conversation, you're going to find that these conversations are happening in every state, and there's going to be champions at the state legislative level who are really listening to their constituents on these issues. And so partnering with people who are in the battlefield on this and who can really say, let's direct you to their office or the person who's going to be the most responsive is a great way to start. If you are in a state that doesn't have an advocacy group that does that, start with your local representative, right? You have so much authority to call that office and say, what are you doing about these issues? Are you working with somebody else on these issues? Um, I The best anecdote I can give you is 50 calls to a legislative office feels like a million. They just get totally overwhelmed. So it doesn't take that many voices to really create change and almost panic at the legislative level. And so parents really need to be empowered to use their voice. I think that's wonderful advice. Libby, it has been a pleasure. Again, Libby Sobic, the Director of Education Policy with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Thank you so much. Everyone, go check out their website, Restoring American Education. Learn more about the model policies they have available. And Libby, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.